Good morning, State Road, and happy Mother's Day. Uh, this, is an, this is a very special Mother's Day because, of course, just a few days ago on May 4th, I believe, uh, our friends Katie and Andrew White welcomed their newborn, Carson, into the world. Six pounds, five ounces, 18.5 inches long. And uh, we received that news with so much joy, and we're so excited for the McKennas and the, and the Whites and and this new addition to our extended church family. And uh, this being Mother's Day, just wanted to open our service this morning with a, a few thoughts about moms and your unique calling before the Lord in uh, discipling up little people. In Proverbs 1, 7 through 9, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Uh, in verse 8 there, it says that dad is an instructor and mom is a teacher. And therefore, the family is a school. The family really is God's basic school for instructing children on how to live for Christ in the world. And biblical motherhood is a labor of intense, passionate love. It's a Christ-centered calling to give their children the most excellent thing they know of and in an environment of unconditional love and support to pass the baton of faith to the next generation of the church. Uh, Mother's Day is an annual reminder to the church to support and encourage moms in this critical ministry, and it is critical. Um, just as I think back on my own faith journey, I am very mindful of the incredibly important role that my mom played in, in, um, in sharing the faith with me and in setting an example in front of me of humility and honesty. And I just have many times over the years had cause to pause and reflect on with enormous gratitude just on the role that God um, gave my mom and that she played uh, in my own life. And so what I want to do this, uh, this week is I want to give you five ways that we can encourage the mothers in our fellowship this week in the midst of that calling. Uh, mother, being a mother is, um, is, is difficult at times, and just like any calling, any ministry, uh, we want to come alongside moms in the midst of their calling and encourage them in it. So here are five ways we can encourage the mothers in our fellowship this week. One is prayer. Uh, I'd encourage you to, as the Holy Spirit lays a mom on your heart this week, maybe it's your own mother, uh, maybe it's a, a mother in our fellowship that, you, that the Holy Spirit lays on your heart, but take time and send them a note or a phone call or an email or something to tell them not only that you prayed for them, but also for their family this week. I think most moms um, appreciate and love when people are mindful of them but they are especially grateful when people join them, partner with them in the ministry that they have to their family by also praying for their families. Second are words of encouragement. Uh, motherhood has its seasons, and some of them are just awesome, and there's nothing more rewarding or joy-filled than being a mom. Um, but others can be the sort that fill a mom with private doubts about how well she's doing. And words of encouragement can go a long way toward encouraging a mother in her calling. Uh, so send a mom a note this week to affirm them. Tell her something specific that you admire about her parenting or something admirable that you see in her children. Then let her know that you love her family. 
Uh, The third thing I'd invite you to consider before the Lord is volunteering. Uh, Unfortunately, in the midst of this pandemic, it is not possible to work directly with young people. Uh, But when this is all over, some mothers will want a break from working with their children. (laughs) Oftentimes, and this is a little strange, but oftentimes the one who are asked to serve in children's ministry at church are those who are already up to their eyeballs in diapers and coloring books at home. And giving them responsibility for children's church or nursery might be a bit like throwing a bucket of water at a drowning person. And so by volunteering to serve in a children's ministry, such as children's church, Sunday school, the nursery, hide-and-seek club, even varsity, or volunteering at Camp Nomaca, uh, by volunteering to fill these roles, you might be giving a mom a chance to come up for air and be refreshed in worship while somebody else comes alongside and helps her in her calling to disciple her children. So consider being a volunteer in children's ministries. The fourth thing you can do to, to uh, encourage mothers, uh, and I'd encourage you to do this this week, is to anonymous, anonymously send a mom a gift card for takeout or some other surprise. Uh, surprises are a wonderful way to surprise, uh, to bless and encourage any Christian worker, uh, a missionary on the field or a mom. Uh, just anonymously send them a, a gift card and just let them know you want to uh, encourage them in their, in their role as a mom, a Christian mom this week. And lastly, the fifth way that I, that I thought about this week that we can encourage the moms here in our own fellowship is by being an example to their children. Uh, What Christian moms want most from their church is for all of us to set an awesome example of godliness in front of their children. So we should strive this week and all the weeks ahead as a church family to be the sort of exciting Christian that you would like to see our little list worshipers grow up to be. And I think in these five things, if we can pray for our moms this week, send them some words of encouragement in the midst of their calling, if uh, we've Uh, commit before the Lord to volunteering in children's ministries once those things are back up and running again. Uh, If we think thoughtfully about ways to surprise and serve the mothers in our midst, and if we um, strive to be an example of good Christian character in front of their kids. I I know all parents uh, just really want their church family to be the kind of awesome Christian community where the gospel becomes contagious and where just by having their kids around authentic, real, sincere Christians, they are helped in their primary ministry to their children by an extended family in the church that just provides this great context where Jesus is lived out in a real way, an authentic way. And so by being an an example. And uh, Sarah and I have been blessed to bring our kids here to State Road and to have uh, so many wonderful Christians around them people who are honest about their struggles and things like that, but also just living in a very sincere, vibrant way. So there you go. Let me pray for you moms um, right now and, and just lift you up in the midst of your calling. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for uh, the gift of moms. And Father, just to all of us looking back over our lives, we just are so grateful for Now, the way that moms have been a blessing and a help to all of us. And Father, our desire as a church family in this moment is to uh, ask you, Lord, to help moms in the midst of their calling. 
Father, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would give them wisdom, encourage them. Father, we pray for their children, Father, that you would uh, create in, in, in the hearts and minds of the little ones here at State Road um, a growing, vibrant faith, a sincerity, a love for righteousness. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, by the Holy Spirit, give a supernatural weight to the efforts of our mothers to make you visible to their children. Father, as moms do their best to impart wisdom and truth to their children, Father, I pray that you would give those children soft hearts and minds. Father, parenting can be a very confusing business, and there are seasons, Lord, where in the fog of war, as it were, God, we just are filled with doubts if we're doing things right. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would, by the Holy Spirit, come alongside moms and encourage them, guide them, and, uh, and direct them, Lord. Father, we're so grateful for the, uh, just the wonderful community here at State Road, and in this season of separation, um, when all of us are feeling isolated, um, moms and dads both are deprived from one of the greatest um, tools in our parenting arsenal, which is the church community. But Father, I pray this week that we as a church would come around the mothers in our fellowship in, in, uh, in, in ways that are creative and uh, thoughtful, God, that we might as a church family reach out to those moms and, and those families and, and bless and encourage them from afar. Father, we look forward to the day when we can all be rejoined. Um, but in the midst of this time, Father, we just give you thanks and thank you for the moms here at State Road. Pray you bless them and encourage them in their calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as we've been doing now for several weeks, uh, this morning what I want to do is dive into, do a deep dive into another one of Paul's prison prayers. And every week what I've been doing is taking a different one of these prison prayers and just making it my prayer for you guys throughout the week. And it has been, um, I don't even know the right word for it, it's just really transformed my prayer life in this, some of the most delightful and surprising ways as I've reflected on the different prison prayers of Paul. Uh, I've been at different times um, just amazed at the things I have found there and challenged. I've felt at times corrected, uh, maybe even rebuked by God's word as I've uh, held up the Paul's practices and prayer to my own. And, and this week was no different. I just had this uh, great week with the Lord as uh, the Holy Spirit would bring um, you folks to my mind, my friends here from my church family, and I would... Um, pray for you. I, I just uh, really enjoyed this prayer, and I would invite you to take it and make it your prayer for your brothers and sisters throughout this coming week. And the, the text I want to spend time in this morning is Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. Uh, the first part is not a prayer. It's just sort of a prelude to the prayer. The prayer is actually in verses 9 through 11, but he precedes the prayer with some, um, some information that I want to share also. And so beginning in verse 3 of Philippians 1, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to uh, help us as as we study uh, this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that by the Holy Spirit you would guide us into truth, prepare our hearts and minds to receive it. And God, I pray that as we go ahead this week that you would uh, stir us up to pray more and more for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The flow of this passage goes like this. In verses 3 through 7, Paul reflects in kind of a a, a retrospective kind of way on the spiritual attainments of his friends in Philippi. He says that they have partnered with him in the gospel. He says that God has begun a good work in them and that they are partakers with him in grace. Then in verse 9 through 11, uh, we find a future-looking prayer that they would attain to even greater spiritual heights. And the past tense retrospective of verses 3 through 7 and the forward-looking prayer of verses 9 through 11 meet in verse 8, where confident hope and anxious prayer meet in Paul's longing for them. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul begins by letting the Philippian Christians know that they are on his mind. And then he tells them that they are in his heart. And lastly, that they are in his prayers. And and this is a natural progression that I've been experiencing over the course of these past weeks as well. Maybe you have too. Uh, Throughout the day as I'm working or driving or just going about my business, uh, memories of my church family will come to my mind. And warm feelings follow the memories. And what do you do, do then? Well, as Paul put it, you yearn for your friends, but you can't be together. Well, what do you do with that? And like Paul, I'm often drawn into prayer. So first in my mind, and then my heart, and then my prayers. And interestingly, the progression in this passage of Scripture follows a very similar pattern that we experience in fasting. Fasting and prayer are often paired together in the Bible. And a little over a month ago, I put something out on Facebook. I asked, how is your people fast going? (laughs) I was talking about this uh, strange season where we're isolated and separated from people we'd like to be with. And so I asked, how's your people fast going? But now I know that this time of isolation is not really a fast. It's not self-imposed. And so it doesn't technically meet the criteria for what a fast is, but it does seem to me that there's more than just a little overlap in the experience. Although our motivation to self-isolate came at first from a desire to save lives, uh, that does not mean that you cannot now approach this time in the same spirit as a fast. The point of fasting is to communicate to God that there's something you crave more than the satisfaction of your appetites. 
And man has a deep inborn appetite for friendship and gathering. We're social, we're, we are social creatures by design. However, when you want more of God and you want him more than anything, one way that the Bible prescribes for Christians to demonstrate that is by temporarily refraining from something that is otherwise good. So when believers want more of God or they want him to move with power, they fast in order to communicate that they crave those things more than the food or friends or what other good thing that they're refraining from. And this serves to sharpen and focus our prayers with urgency. Oftentimes in the Bible, God's people would pray and fast when they had some specific challenge in view. And by fasting, every rumbling of their empty stomach caused them to turn to God in prayer. The craving hunger that they felt for food was translated into a craving for God and for him to move in power. So when Paul speaks of a yearning that draws him into prayer, I can't help but think of fasting. It strikes me as a very similar pattern. And thinking of it in this way has helped me to find a productive way to channel my desire to see you all again. So in these days, I think we should let every longing to gather with our friends draw us into deeper prayer on behalf of those friends and also into a deeper friendship with God. So like all of Paul's prayers, uh, these few lines of Philippians 1, 3 through 11 are the entry point into a whole world of ideas. They're just chock-a-block full of so many worthy things to unpack and focus our attention on. For example, we could talk a lot about the fact that Paul mentions the day of Christ twice in this section, once in verse 6 and again in verse 10. He mentions this as a motivation and an encouragement for living the Christian life. He doesn't say we're to live for God because of the certainty of death. Death is not a certainty at all. The Word of God tells us that some people will be alive when Jesus returns. So in Paul's view, death is not a certainty, but the second, of coming, the second coming of Christ is. And we're to live our lives in light of the certainty of that coming day. And in all the ups and downs of life, uh, keeping that at the center of our thinking is a great encouragement. By pinning the hearts of his, Phili of his Philippian friends to that promised day, he guards their hearts against becoming too attached to these days and also becoming too discouraged in the midst of the days in which they're living. So that's one thing we could talk about. We could talk about the prominent place that Paul gives to the second coming of Christ in the midst of his hopes and his prayers for his friends. And that's a motive for living the Christian life. But he also alludes to the divine secret to living that kind of life. In verse 6, Paul talks about how God both began a good work in his Philippian friends, and he's now continuing that work. And this language closely parallels Hebrews 12, 2, where Jesus is described as the founder and perfecter of our faith. So Paul is saying that it's only through God's working in the life of a believer, through the Holy Spirit, that we gain the capacity to live such a life. This is the point Paul is making in the last verse of this section, verse 11, when he prays that his Philippian friends would be filled with the would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So he's so in talking about the day of Christ, he's talked about the motive for living one of the motives for living a Christian life. When he talks about through Christ, 
He's talking about the divine secret, the power to live such a life. And by concluding this section with the phrase, to the glory and praise of God, Paul is pointing us to the ultimate object of living the Christian life, the glory of God. Now all those ideas and more, there's loads more in there, are worth fleshing out more. But the thing I felt led to point out this morning is something more general about the spirit of what Paul was asking from God on behalf of his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And this is really what I've enjoyed thinking about and praying for you, my friends, this week as the Spirit brought you to my mind. Notice the progression of Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. Paul begins by asking that God would cause their love to abound more and more. And he asks that the growth of love would happen apace with the attainment of knowledge and discernment. Here Paul reminds me of a chef adding ingredients to create a very specific flavor profile. He's just, he adds lots of love and then here's some knowledge and here's some discernment. And these three things combine in the pot to create something really good. And that something is stated at the beginning of verse 10, that you may approve what is excellent. Love, knowledge, discernment, excellent. And it is that word excellent that really captured my imagination and affected my prayers for you this past week. Because by saying that you may approve what is excellent, Paul is not asking from God that the Philippian church would be able to discern between what is good and what is bad, but between what is good and what is excellent. This is really what Paul is praying for the church in Philippi, that they would be able, as their love abounds more and more, and God gifts them with supernatural knowledge and discernment, that they would discern between what is good and what is excellent. And here again, I was brought up short with conviction by how different Paul's prayers are from my own. A quick scan of my prayer list revealed that I am praying for some people who seem to be teetering on the edge between what is bad and what is good. They're wandering. And of course, also, I'm praying for people who are hurting or in poor health or in the midst of a tragedy of one kind or another. And those prayers are not wrong or bad. In fact, they're right and good. There's that word good again. It's not that my prayer life is bad. It's good. But it's settling for the good that often robs us of the better. And what's better can even hold us back from what is best. Mostly what motivates me to pray for someone is when their life kind of goes off the rails when they wander from the truth, when they become afflicted with an illness or when they're going through a crisis or some trial and they're, they're hurting and so I pray for them. And again, that's not wrong. That's good. That's how it should be. We should pray for one another when those kinds of things happen. But Paul is helping us through his example in this prayer to move from what is good to be- something that's better in our prayers for one another something that's more full. 
For example, how often do I pray for people who are just kind of doing okay, whose lives are established in good patterns, whose lives are wholesome, whose marriages are intact, who have their health and their job? There's an old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And I think many of us have fallen into a pattern of prayer where we pray for one another when something awful is happening. But how often do we pray for one another in the calm, when things are good? And how often do we pray for things like that they would be more than good, they'd be excellent? Very often, I think that the church, the vast majority of church-going people, most of the time, their lives are good, but perhaps not marked by a radical excellence. Paul says that as love abounds more and more in our lives, we need knowledge and discernment to approve what is excellent. We can discriminate between good and bad without much special discernment or deep, profound knowledge. But when it comes to shades of goodness, gradations of worthiness, good, better, best, we do need more knowledge and discernment. Because most people become too easily satisfied with their present spiritual attainments, and so they lose sight of what is possible. And this is the progression of this section of Scripture. Remember, in verses 3 through 7, Paul uh, looks backward in a retrospective way on all of the things he has seen among the Philippians. He's talked about their faith. He's talked about good stuff that God has brought into existence in their lives. It's good. It's all really good. But he doesn't just plateau there. He doesn't just say, keep doing what you're doing. No, he then turns in an anxious way that God would have caused their love to abound even more, more and more, with love and discernment that they could approve what's excellent. And before I continue with this thought, let me first just point out that Paul leads with love in his prayer. He leads with love because if we have knowledge and discernment, but not an overflowing abundance of love, then the Christian life quickly becomes an unsustainable and passionless to-do list of obligations and drudgery. (laughs) Many of you know uh, the biblical commands, that there is a, a, a much higher calling on your life than what we're currently living. I know that, you know that. Most Christians who have been steeped in God's word and a part of the church for a long time have this nagging awareness that um, we're not living the Christian life to its fullest. And that's true for me, it's true probably for all of us. And so just having that awareness, having an awareness of what I should be doing, but not a desire to do it, is a bit of a tricky place to be in because it does seem unsustainable. Quickly, Christ, the Christian life can become this religious treadmill where we're, we're motivated by obligation to do what we don't want to do. But Paul's prayer is that God would lead the Philippians by their desires. He prays first that their love would abound more and more and that that abounding love would draw them into a deeper understanding and discernment that would in turn lead them to a joyous, enduring embrace of something that's excellent. So we should pray first for a transformed inner world, 
for our, new, for our brothers and sisters. New passions and desires that draws our friends deeper and deeper into God's will for their lives. Basically, in a word, what Paul prays for the Philippians is that they would be striving. Paul may begin this section by reflecting on their past spiritual attainments. But because he loves them, he quickly pivots and prays that they would not plateau. They would not just be satisfied with where they're at. But that they would strive upward and onward to the height, new heights of excellence as followers of Jesus. Even though the Philippian church is not embroiled in the same kind of scandalous behavior that marks the Corinthian church, for example, or it doesn't seem to be threatening to abandon the gospel like the Galatians were. If you read the book of Galatians, it's very clear. Paul is very strongly worded in rebuking them for what seems to be a temptation to just um, embrace another gospel, a false gospel. So unlike the Corinthians or the Galatians, there's no crisis that motivates the writing of this letter. But Paul does not neglect to pray for the good Philippians. But his prayer for them is not that they would choose the good over the bad, but that they would have knowledge and discernment to graduate from the good to what is better and from what is better to what is best. And the lesson in this for us as followers of Jesus is that there can be no resting on the laurels of what we have already attained in Christ. How well we are doing as a Christian can't be measured so much by the point we have reached, but by the progress we're making. It's not really where you're at this morning, but the trajectory and the direction of your life, that is the measure. And that's encouraging to us um, because some of us have attained great, great things in the Christian life. We've, we can talk about different uh, things that God has done through us, things we've done in ministry, um, different, different things. And some of you aren't, aren't there yet. But for both of us, for any Christian, that doesn't matter. What you've attained um, is not the measure of how you're doing. It's the trajectory. It's the direction. It's your desires. It's, it's what you are moving towards that matters. Living for Jesus in the midst of a fallen world means that all of our movement toward Christ and Christ-likeness is opposed strongly by the current running in the opposite direction. We feel this within ourselves, in our own sin nature. It's in the culture. It's, it's just the milieu in which we lived. We are swimming upstream against every impulse of the flesh and against the advice of the culture. Even now, the prevailing current is pulling strongly at our hearts and minds. There really is a strong downward pull to these days that we're living in. And if we ever stop striving against that, the current, it pulls us away from where we want to go. So Paul prays for people who are good that they wouldn't be content with that. They wouldn't settle for what they've already attained, but that they would continue striving. And that's been my prayer for you this week, State Road. I have delighted in remembering so many of you by name before the Lord as I flip through my directory and through my mind, just remembering you all. 
and I have been praying for you with gratitude for all the good things I know he's doing in your life, for all of your testimonies and the things you say to me about your confidence in God and your partnership with me and our brothers and sisters here at State Road in the faith. I have given thanks to you for the good thing that God has begun in you and that even now he is seeing it through to completion. But in my, as, my, as you come into my thoughts and as my feelings follow the thoughts, I have been turning to God in prayer and asking him to take that good thing that has begun and to cause the love of God to abound more and more in your hearts with knowledge and discernment that you may approve what is excellent. Oh, and just what a wonderful thing that has been to pray for you, church family, this week. And I'd love it if we would be praying that for one another throughout this coming week. Let me close now just by lifting you up in God to prayer, in in prayer, church family. Dear Heavenly Father, that is my prayer. Father, I I pray that the love of my friends here at State Road Advent Christian Church Father, I pray that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory and praise, God. Father, if we are sleepy, wake us up. If we're wandering, pursue us. If we're distant, draw us near. If we're lofty, Lord, cut us down. If we're low, lift us up. Father, if we reflect the culture, conform us to Christ. If we're fractured, make us whole. If we're fractious, make us one. If we are arrogant, Lord, make us helpless. If we're satisfied, make us desperate. If we're at peace with sin, make us warriors. If we're apathetic, Father, make us hungry. If we're dutiful, make us joyous. If we're silent, give us a voice. If we are cowards, Lord, make us brave. If we're lazy, give us new passions to spur us on. And if we are cool, set us on fire. And if we are good, Lord, make us excellent. Father, I pray that you would do a wonderfully transforming work in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here at State Road. Father, I pray that you would, by, through the Holy Spirit, cause our church to grow in these days into new heights of obedience to you, yieldedness to you. Father, help us to have more of an impact Father, help us to approve what is excellent. Lead us by our desires into a more excellent way. In Jesus' name, amen. State Road, I love you. I'll be praying for you this week, and hopefully we can connect right here on the internet next week. Love you guys. Have a great week.